Hi everyone, welcome to Food Talk. Producer Stephen Ray Morris here to tell you about our episode with Executive Director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition, Lawrence Haddad. Danny and Lawrence have a great conversation about a really important problem, malnutrition. Enjoy the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Food Talk, the podcast with me, Danny Nuremberg. Today I'm chatting with Lawrence Haddad, the Executive Director of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. Uh, Lawrence recently won the World Food Prize in October of last year, along with a, a good friend of Food Tank, uh, David Navarro, for their work really uh, helping elevate maternal and child malnutrition at the national and international levels. Lawrence is an economist um, and was the, the founding co-chair and the lead author of the Global Nutrition Report from 2014. 14 to 2016, and he was the director of the Institute of Development Studies. He was also the director of food consumption, uh, the Food Consumption and Nutrition Division at the International Food Policy Research Institute, and was the UK's representative on the steering committee of the high-level panel of experts of the United Nations Committee on World Food Security. And he was um, the president of the UK and Ireland's Development Studies Association. It's a long bio, Lawrence. I'm sure I've missed something. Do you want to add anything to your to your Sorry, resume? No, <laughs> no, no, nothing to add. <laughs> no, it's such an honor to have you. And uh, Food Tank has been uh, working with Gain and and uh, having you at our summits for a long time. Uh, and we're just really excited to, to have you on, on our podcast. Um, one of the things that I do is I always ask everyone the same first question, and that's what is your favorite food memory? And you've traveled all over the world. I'm sure you have many, but it would be great for you to share with our listeners something that really strikes you. Um, well, my favorite food memory was um, eating grilled fish on a beach in Indonesia. Just, I just loved the, the taste and the flavor and the atmosphere. And food is so much about more than just what something tastes like. And uh, that really encapsulated the moment. It was very evocative. I don't know how healthy it was, but it was very tasty. Well, it sounds healthy. I, I love like that that's a very simple dish. You know, it, it's not something fancy that you had at a restaurant. It was on the beach. That's wonderful. That's a great memory to share. Um, I, I do want to start by asking you to explain what the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition does. I don't know if how many of our listeners are really familiar with you, but, you know, uh, from my work with you all, you're really trying to look at, at malnutrition holistically. But what does that mean? Well, we're really trying to, I mean, our, our purpose, on our, if you look at the website, it says we're trying to improve the consumption of nutritious food for everybody, especially the most vulnerable and we're trying to do that because, as you know, food, what people eat, is um, one of the leading risk factors for the global burden of disease, no matter what country you're in, whether it's India or, or the US. And so how do we make food that's nutritious, how do we make it more available, more affordable, and actually more desirable? And if that's your goal, you have to work within the food system and the entire food system from everything from production right through to consumption and, and actually waste. Uh, and if you're going to work in the food system and try and make the food system more nutrition friendly, which is what we're trying to do, you have to work with both governments and businesses. And that's what we try to do. We try to bring governments and businesses together to find solutions 
in the food system that will make these kinds of foods more available, affordable, and desirable. And we will develop programs and interventions, we will pilot them, evaluate them, and then look to scale them and sustain them, either through government programs or through market-based interventions. So that's what we do. We work mostly in, in Africa and Asia. And so you, you said something very interesting to me that you want to make agriculture more nutrition friendly. That's not a direct quote, but that phrase more nutrition friendly. Why isn't agriculture more nutrition friendly in the first place? I think that would strike some people as sort of ironic. Yeah, I mean, when, when I was a young man lear uh, learning about all this stuff, you, you'd see a lot of studies that would show that the most malnutrition you'd find in the country was actually in the areas where there was most food production. And um, I can never really understand this. Um, and it's, it's really because, you know, agriculture is not really about uh, nutrition. It's about, it's about jobs and it's about profits uh, and it's about production of things. And, you know, jobs um, generate income and income can be used to purchase better diets or it can be used to purchase other things. Um, profits can be derived from things such as um, non-food crops, or they can be derived from food. Mm -hmm. Food produced in agriculture can be exported or it can be consumed domestically. So there are thousands of choices when you when it comes to producing food and thousands of outcomes that can result as a, as a result of that production. And only a small set of them are actually nutrition-promoting. It's, it's still ironic to me. It, it just, you know, it's, it's kind of baffling. And I, I've worked in this sector for a long time, and I'm still baffled by it. So, so why is the private sector and sort of the combination of the public and private sector so important for the work that GAIN does? Well, it's, it's really important, Danny, because most people in the world, even in countries that are uh, in, still, still emerging, like Ethiopia, um, most people buy their food, they acquire their food through markets. Some some people in marginal rural areas still get most of their food um, through food that they produce or their neighbors produce and give, give to them. And most people buy their food and so if you buy your food it means you're engaging with markets and markets are comprised of, bus of businesses and people. Um, governments set up the rules um, to guide those markets in certain ways. Um, so governments have to be involved because they set the nutrition targets, they, they have the power to govern markets, and businesses have to be involved because they are the main investors in markets. And, and so I know GAIN has worked, you know, on really building or helping small and medium-sized businesses sort of, um, you know, increase their their impact can you give some examples of some of the the companies uh you know especially in in sub-saharan africa um i know there's a really interesting chicken sort of uh company that's doing a lot of innovation can you talk about that yeah i mean there was a, a small um very small business in kenya that was in, in operating in nairobi and um they 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 started out by saying to themselves why don't more people in nairobi eat chicken Chicken is a relatively, pound for pound, relatively inexpensive source of animal protein. We know there are lots of kids, especially in Nairobi slums and around Nairobi slums, that just don't get enough animal protein. They just, they just don't um, nutritionally. And 
he, he couldn't figure it, figure it out. And he, he eventually, the, the CEO of this company, eventually figured out that because no one has refrigeration, you have to buy a whole chicken and you have to buy it live. And that's expensive. Not many people can afford to buy a whole chicken. So he's, he, his, his brainwave was to say, well, we're going to segment the chicken mm-hmm. and then we're going to segment the chicken and we're going to segment the market. And so the, the pieces of the chicken that you know, no one um, who would consider themselves middle or high would ever consume, like the feet of the mm-hmm. chicken, we're going to separate those out from the breasts of the chicken, which is the best or the most prestigious part of the chicken. And we're going to package the different bits of the chicken. But to make that viable, we're going to franchise um, refrigeration units, mobile refrigeration units, uh, to small shops. So that's what they do. They they have a, um, a chicken segmenting operation that franchises um, refrigerators to other outlets, and the they've gone from I don't know one or two stores to twenty stores in Nairobi. Lots more uh, chicken is being consumed in Nairobi at a at a lower price, and um, it's you know it's just, that's good for nutrition and it's good for businesses. Gain's role was to provide small grants and to help uh, what that we'd raised through public funding mm-hmm. and to provide technical assistance uh, around business planning and around some of the uh, more technical issues around food safety. Well, and these, these cold storage and refrigeration issues not only help with getting more nutrition to folks, but they help do things like prevent, you know, uh, food food loss or, and waste. And I know that's something that's important to you to gain as well. Yeah, I mean, that's and it's it's a very important issue. It's it's really important from a nutrition perspective because most of the things that um, perish uh, along the supply chain tend to be things that are fresh foods, and they tend to be things that are higher in micronutrients. So again, uh, fruits, vegetables, fish, uh, those kinds of things. And so whatever you can do to stop food loss throughout the value chain through poor storage or poor distribution, um, the the better it is for nutrition. And so, again, we work with companies that are trying to do innovative things with with solar panels, with mobile cold storage units, with with insulation. Um, We're trying to work with them and support them to um, link them up with Big, um, for example, in Southern Africa, we link up a large number of small farmers with uh, Spar International, which is the big mm-hmm. uh, retail chain. Spar International. Been to many Spars. <laughs> Me too. And they can buy their food locally. They want to buy their food locally. We help aggregate what local farmers produce into one sort of cold storage assembly unit. And then the Spar trucks can come to that place and buy in to reduce their transaction costs, but they can also provide um, more purchasing power for those local farmers because less food is, is wasted along the way. So everyone benefits, and we're trying to find more and more of those solutions where the consumer benefits, the retailers benefit, and the producers benefit. And and I, I'm very interested in these sort of small-scale um you know, innovations like the refrigerators that you talked about. And why are, you know, so I I think when people think about public-private partnerships, they always assume that it's kind of big business. But what's interesting about this is these are smaller companies who are making a big impact. And so can you talk about the role of of small and medium-sized businesses, that it's not all huge corporations involved in these these Mm public-private partnerships? 
Absolutely. No, I mean, Ed, we work with three types of companies. Thanks. So let me just give you a bit of a roundabout answer to your question. We work with three types. First type is if creative companies, because we're always thinking, how can we create the demand for nutritious food? How can we stimulate that and increase it? Because a lot of businesses and governments say, well, there isn't a demand for nutritious food, and so therefore we don't produce it or we don't we don't care about it. I mean, we, we follow what voters and consumers do. So we buy into part of that argument and we look at the public sector, the way they try to stimulate the demand, and it's, it's rather uninspiring. It's very left brain. It's very focused on you should eat this food because it's good for you, mm. not as the private sector does. You should eat this food because it's... It has some emotional resonance, it's aspirational, it's fun, it makes you look better with your peers. So that's the first set of companies. The second set of companies is the big companies. And we're trying to get the big companies to stop doing um, negative things and start doing more positive things. So how can we get big companies to think seriously about reformulation mm-hmm. of their product? How can we get the big companies to think more seriously about the responsible marketing to children of products. And, uh, but that's very difficult. Working with the big companies, getting them to change their behavior right. is very, very difficult. And then the small and medium companies and actually quite large companies at the national level, those are the ones that are hungrier for change. They're hungrier for innovation. They're, they want to grow. They, they're not as locked into a way of working or, or a sector as some of the other bigger companies are. They can make decisions more quickly because they own those sectors, although they're a big part of the... They're able to pivot more quickly, right? And in fact, many of these small and medium companies, they work in areas that are absolutely vital, like eggs and dairy Mm -hmm. and fruits and vegetables. They do that not because they care that much about nutrition, but they they happen to be working in a a food sector that is, is promoting foods that are good for nutrition. So whenever we can work with the grain, if you know what I mean, and not against the grain, we will do it. So the, the SMEs are really open to, first of all, they have some of the most innovative ideas. Right. Second of all, most of the consumers we really care about buy their food from these SMEs. And third, they're, they're desperately hungry. They want to be the next big company at the, at the national level. So we, we're very happy to work with them. No, it's really exciting. And I, that innovation that comes about because they are sort of, um, as you said, hungry for, for change and for, you know, it, they're, they're still businesses. They're hungry for profit. And, and I think they want to meet the demand that's out there. And you have this huge sector of, you know, um, low income and middle income consumers in the developing world who, who need these products and, 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 but, you know, want to eat well. And, and these companies can really provide that. Mm-hmm. And often these, the small and medium uh, enterprises, they're, they have some real constraints. They're, they're often too big for microcredit, uh, and they're often um, too small for formal credit. They don't have enough collateral or track record. Um, so they often, often in Africa, especially the main constraint for these companies to grow is, is finance. And so again, we will try to find ways of connecting investors, potential investors with these SMEs and work with the SMEs to help them develop really attractive investable propositions. Do you feel like the, the governments that you interact with are, are receptive to this kind of change and interaction? I think, I think they are. I mean, the governments have two challenges. One, the first challenge is 
uh, again, in, in many of the countries we work in, they've just, they just effectively, hunger is still a major problem in, in many places. Um, but many, many countries feel like they've begun to get hunger under control. And, and now people like me and organizations like me are saying, well, actually, you know, you've got this bigger problem, really, which is about food quality. You need to not only worry about hunger, you need to worry about micronutrients, you need to worry about obesity and diabetes type 2 and they're saying whoa you know we just we just dealt with hunger give us a break give us a give us a breathing space between dealing with one issue and having to deal with another so there's that issue and then there's the then there's the sort of um, the feeling that SMEs are not really they're not really the going to be the big drivers of so those are small and medium enterprises for our folks who are listening right yes Danny the small and medium enterprises there's a little bit of a um, and it's not universal and it's not everywhere, but it's a little bit of a bias against those smaller companies. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're, they're small. They're, they're small fry. They're never going to amount to anything. Um, they're, they're, they're people who don't know anything about business. The reality is very different from that. And so we have to do quite a bit of work um, changing the behavior, not just of consumers and businesses, but also of, of governments. And in fact, one of the things that we're doing is developing a – um, an index, if you like, of how easy is it for governments, uh, how easy do governments make it for businesses, whether they're small, medium, or large, to do good things for nutrition. Sure. Um, World Bank has an index about how easy is it to, to do business in a country. So we're trying to develop an, an, an analog index, which is how easy is it for a company that wants to do good things for nutrition to actually do that? How easy does the government make it to do that? So interesting. I, I want to go back to your point um, you brought up about, you know, countries, you know, they're like, we just solved hunger. We've been able to increase yields and increase calories. But what you're talking about is so different. It's about really I- increasing nutrition. And I think that's sort of something that is a disconnect from for a lot of folks. So can you explain why it's important, you know, why it's sure. not enough to think about calories and yields? Sure. I mean... And just to give you a, a bit of an anecdote, I, you know, I tweet a lot, Danny, and I know, I I know that <laughs> I tweet a lot too. Uh, I'm super impressed by your outreach. It's amazing. But, uh, but um, I, I was tweeting about something rather absentmindedly, sometimes I do, uh, about how, you know, African African consumers and governments really need to start watching out about the, the volumes of processed meat that, that are consumed because, we, you know, processed meat, if it's not done right, can really be carcinogenic and have a, you know, a big health problem. And I, I got a couple of tweets back which basically said, you know, hey, you know, why don't you just let us eat our ham in peace and uh, give us a break. And you know, I think it's very easy for people who live in Europe and North America sure. to forget about that. But essentially there are three types of problems. One is about a billion people don't get enough food, period, to eat. About two billion people uh, don't get enough of the right type of food to eat. They don't have an, their stomachs might be full, but they're not getting the right minerals and, and vitamins, which is so important for immune system development, cognitive development, and, and so on and so forth. And then this third group, which is uh, getting too much of the wrong type, high, high in salt, saturated fat, trans fats, and some kinds of sugar, uh, and not enough of the other types. And, of course, these three groups all kind of overlap in, in one way or another. Um, so you know, food, is a, food is not necessarily the most important 
determinant of all types of malnutrition. There are lots of other factors, but food is at the center of all types of malnutrition. And that's why GAIN focuses so much on, on what people eat. Hey everyone, Steve Ray Morris here, producer of Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg, wanted to jump in with a little announcement. Join us for a live Food Talk in Washington, D.C. on Capitol Hill in the Rayburn Building on May 10th, and we also have another event at New York City at NYU on May 14th. We will also be hosting events in partnership with Mother Jones on May 29th in San Francisco and June 5th in Los Angeles. These will all be announced soon enough with more cities and dates. Tickets are already announced first and are free to attend for Food Tank members. Become a member of food tank now at foodtank.com slash join see you there and you know i listed sort of your bio before is that why you you decided to work with gain because of, of that real focus well, i decided i mean i decided to apply for the gain position because um rather late in life i'm uh, a lot older than most of your listeners probably danny but it took me it took me until about 10 years ago um, to really, really understand that the public sector on its own is absolutely not going to be able to solve nutrition, and um, I, I felt like we were missing a lot, a lot of opportunities by not engaging with the private sector. And so the mantra I have is: yes, the private sector is a big part of the problem, and for sure it is. I mean, there are lots of really irresponsible practices that undermine uh, good nutrition, but they have to be part of the solution. And it's, it's you know, we need the we need businesses, I would say more than they need the public sector. Um, we need them. And so the only way to beginning understanding what they do, what they don't do, what drives them, what they're worried about, what the pressure points are, we really need to work with them. And, you know, they're just as there are some um, not very good governments and some very good governments, some not very good NGOs and some good some businesses who really are, are anti-nutrition, but there are many that are very pro-nutrition. Sure. We need ways to work with them. Absolutely. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit. You know, I mentioned that you and David Navarro won the World Food Prize for really highlighting the importance of focusing on, on childhood and, and maternal health and nutrition. Can you talk about, you know, that moment when you, you, you know, this is a, a really prestigious award. It, it's been controversial over the last few years. I was thrilled that you and David won it. Can you talk about why it's important that, you know, for uh, an institution like the, the World Food Prize to recognize the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it was um, a, a big win for nutrition, really. Water, education, women's empowerment, climate change, um, sanitation—you name it. Um, anything that moves the needle on nutrition, we work on it. So, for this, this, this essentially um, hunger, staple crop, food production um, foundation to recognize David and me is a big win for nutrition. Absolutely. Feel like we've we've punctured one um, sort of level of consciousness. No, I mean that's why people like me are thrilled because you know we're you know I've I've attended the World Food Prize and it's often very sort of as you said you know production focused and and to switch that focus to to nutrition and really you know the 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 role that you and David are playing as as you know global and really influential advocates was so exciting so congratulations again it, it's it's an exciting time for I think the nutrition community and sort of the the 
sustainable food system community, uh, and and we're all applauding you um, and, and those efforts. I, you know, I I always get the sense of of when I talk to folks at Gain, Bonnie, and and Teal, and 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 you that you're you're very hopeful, and there's a lot of you know bad news out there in terms of you know the the recent climate change report, um, you know the the gl- growing. Um, rise of, of non-communicable diseases that are a result of diet. Do you, do you feel hopeful or is it an act, <laughs> Lawrence? Um, well, I, I'm kind of a half, a glass half full kind of guy anyway, but I, I am hopeful and I'll tell you why. I, when, I was, um, when I was a young man, we used to think of Africa uh, as having 40%, 50% stunting rates. And, you know, Kenya, Kenya's stunting rate is now 18 or 19 percent. Sorry, no, Kenya is about 26 percent. Ghana is about 18 or 19 Uh percent. So Kenya is about half of what it used to be when I was uh, in my 20s. And Ghana is almost a third of what it used to be. And the Ghana story is incredible. It's essentially half the stunting rate over a 10-year period. Big state in India, Maharashtra, has done exactly the same. Gone from thirty something, thirty something to about um, the low twenties, the high thirties to the low twenties. I just heard that Bangladesh uh, has got its stunting rate down to the low thirties. Indonesia has got its stunting rate down to the mid twenties. These are big countries having big changes in short periods of time. So that gives me hope. I think what gives me hope about the NCD issues, you're quite right, NCDs, non-communicable disease, diet-related things like diabetes and hypertension are rising, uh, and obesity is rising in nearly every country in the world. What gives me hope about that is that um, policymakers and business leaders are being affected. There's a very powerful moment when um, the head of the uh, World Health Organization, uh, Dr. Tedros, uh, was on a, a different different issue, but he said, "Stand up if anyone in your family is affected by." I think it was. I think it was. Um, I think it was diabetes. Actually, uh-huh. it was a big one. And nearly everyone stood up because nearly everyone was affected. Knew yeah. somebody by the. Um, so that that we didn't have that with stunting and wasting. Stunting and wasting was something that happened to people over there who were less powerful and had less of a voice. Now you know, diabetes, obesity, um, hypertension, strokes cancers, these are things that are affecting people in power. So in, in, a, in, a, in a strange sort of way, that gives me hope that there's a bit of a feedback loop in terms of action will happen simply because people who are in power are directly affected by this thing. And, and I, I think the other thing that gives me hope is that, yes, we, have, we still have stunting and wasting issues of undernutrition to deal with and hunger, uh, uh, but yes, the fact that obesity and diet-related NCDs and hypertension are also rising, that's, that's a double burden, but it's also a, a multiple opportunities. We can create new alliances. Mm-hmm. We can create new partnerships. Sure. We can create advocacy strategies around uh, the quality of food. So I am, I am hopeful. I, I think we can get to that 100 million stunting target by 2030. I think the projections are that if things are going as they are, we'll be at 130 million. We're currently at about 155 million. But I think we can get to the 100 million um, by 2030. I think I think success breeds success, and we're just going to see more and more of it. And I think we will begin to see 
not only a slowdown in the rise of obesity and other um, related uh, symptoms, I think we'll begin to see a plateauing and even a, a decline. And we're seeing a decline in some states in the U.S. in the, in the rates of obesity. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll begin to see other places. And I think for obesity and diet-related NCDs, that success as well. I also think cities and mayors have a big role oh to play. Oh, my gosh, for sure. They want their cities to be livable. They want to attract businesses to their cities. Not just in America, but all over the world. And I think we have, uh, they have a sphere of control that is perhaps greater than many national leaders. I think Absolutely. Make- no, I'm really excited as well about what cities and and villages and, and, and smaller sort of municipalities are doing, especially when there's an absence of leadership at the federal level yes. on a lot of these things. So it is exciting. And, you know, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're hopeful. I, I am too, uh, maybe, maybe for different reasons, but a, a lot of the same ones too. But I, I, I want to go back to this point about how the people in power are now being affected. That's such a crucial point and something that I've never really heard said out loud. And, and I think, you know, it's a good reminder that, you know, these, these, are cross-cutting issues. No matter where you live, you know, nutrition affects you and it affects your family and your community and, and we all need to make change. Yeah, I mean, I, you've, you've heard me say this many times before, Danny, but, um, you know, no country has a monopoly on the problem of malnutrition and no country has a monopoly on the solution. Right. We all have to work together. And I, I think one other thing that gives me hope and is different when you, when you, when you look at... Um, sort of malnutrition in all its forms. When we look at undernutrition, we tend to focus a lot on under five children and their parents. Mm-hmm. And those groups are essentially you know, very vulnerable. And if we can fix the, the issues with the under fives and the under twos, um, we can fix a big, big part of the problem. But when you begin to look at malnutrition in all its forms, you begin to think about, well, what about the five to 11-year-olds? And what about the 11 to 20-year-olds? Mm-hmm. Want to think about those groups? You begin to think about agency. Those those are not those are not those are not individuals that we will deliver programs to. Those are individuals that actually can be agents of change. They can they can influence the school administrators. They can influence their local MPs. Their local they can influence their parents. They can we we're working with a fantastic foundation in Bangladesh on something called the pocket money. Pledge, which which is a, it's an adolescent movement in Bangladesh that puts a lot of pressure on the government of Bangladesh to, to do things differently for adolescents mm. around schooling and health. And mm-hmm. this pocket which says we we commit to spending an X percentage of our pocket monies on healthy foods if you if you commit to doing X Y and Z in terms of making healthier foods more available. It. That's amazing. So again, Malnutrition in its forms forces all of us differently about about malnutrition reduction. Absolutely, and and that you know that youth, those youth inspired efforts are so exciting and hopeful to me as well. And I mean, there's so much that young people can do and that they are doing to improve health. And that I, I've said this a million times before. You know, the best part of my job is getting to meet so many young people around the world who are inspiring me and and you know f- forcing me to to keep going and and providing that hope. And you know, they're really important because they really care about climate change. They really care about working for an organization that has a social purpose as mm-hmm. well as a making purpose. All the stats show this. So I'm quite optimistic, really, 
Absolutely, me too. So um, my my final question is is kind of a rapid fire three questions uh, of three questions. And so I'm going to ask you three questions. You probably just you know the first thing that pops into your head, just say it, um, and and then we'll 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 go from there. So your favorite food or agriculture book, Lawrence? Oh. Um, a book by Bruce Johnston that I uh, studied when I was a, a kid called Redesigning Rural Development. Nice, great. Who inspires you the most? Uh, my my old boss um, at IFPRI, Pear Prince Trabanderson. He, nice. He I just like inspired Pear. me. He inspired me just in the way he thinks, but the way he treats people. So humble. That's great. And the final one is the innovation that you're most excited about right now. Hmm. I think software apps have a lot, a big, a big potential in terms of shared economy. Thinking about can we do something um, like, like Uber, Uber type stuff, but around markets? Because so many markets have so many middlemen, and they effectively jack the price up of so many healthy products, and you know, often, often backed up by the threat of intimidation and violence. Is there a way to somehow short-circuit a lot of those folks to get food more directly to, to poor consumers? Very cool. I like that answer a lot. Lawrence, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Um, I know we had some some scheduling issues, so I really, really appreciate you making the time. And, and I, I, you know, you and I have not seen each other uh, in person as far as I know ever. So I'd really love the chance to, to, to see you in person uh, the next time we talk. Danny, it's uh, it was a pleasure. The reason I said yes was I'm such a big admirer of what you've done uh, over the last 10 years. It's really extraordinary. So thank you for giving me the opportunity. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com, email me at danielle at foodtank.com, and follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk. Thank you again for listening. Join us to see the podcast recorded live at the upcoming Food Talk event in a city near you by visiting foodtank.com slash events. Tickets are always free for Food Tank members, so join now and we'll see you there.